In the last 10 years, our field has gone from an unknown specialty to a household name. This brings unprecedented opportunities, but we need to rise up to meet them and give our patients the care that they deserve. In order to help others get better, we need to be better. This podcast will help you to become more confident with your patients, more successful in your practice or business, and a leader in pelvic health. And we're going to have some fun along the way. Join us as we rise together. We're Jesse and Nicole Cozine, founders of Pelvic Sanity Physical Therapy and the creators of the Pelvic PT Huddle. And this is Pelvic PT Rising. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Pelvic PT Rising Podcast with Jesse and Nicole Cozine. Hey Nicole. Hello. Talking today, this is the second in our ongoing series entitled A Missing Piece. If you missed our last one, we talked about the postpartum evaluation. And these are meant to give a single thing that Nicole feels like is most missing, most often overlooked or dismissed or kind of brushed past with a specific diagnosis. Because obviously we can't sit here and today we're talking about, you know, urinary incontinence, stress urinary incontinence. We can't talk about everything in that diagnosis, treatments, all of the different pieces, but we can talk about what is the one thing that we think is most often missed or overlooked with this. And for you, Nicole, your answer here was task and timing. And before we dive into that, just something to be paying attention to. As you guys know, we've been talking a lot about Pelvicon. Those who have tickets are able to get your add-ons and pessary fitting and labor and delivery and birth information in the postcon, all of that good stuff. But I want you guys to know that you should be following Pelvicon underscore official on Instagram because there are a handful of actual in-person tickets left. At the date of this recording, we don't know how many that is or how long they're going to be available, but make sure you are paying attention, checking your email. You can always be checking at Pelvicon official or on pelvicon.com to see the status of those. If the FOMO is real for you, frankly, it should be. It's going to be freaking amazing. I can't wait for it and something to be considering. So just going to leave that there. Make sure you guys are paying attention to that. So Nicole, stress urinary incontinence, task and timing. And I feel like this is a big departure because our primary thought is usually strength. Yes. So if you think about where, sometimes I'm like, where do we go so wrong? (laughs) How did we get here where we're doing the perfect score? We're looking at voluntary activation of the pelvic floor. We're doing all the things. And that is definitely... It's not wrong. If you're doing that, don't worry. I don't think you're a complete idiot. However, what I do think, though, is that the way that we're taught primarily, and and the one that I know the most is from Herman and Wallace because we've hosted courses at Pelvic Sanity, Herman and Wallace won most recently about a year ago. And one of the things that I seriously, I had to bite my tongue so hard I had to like leave the room sometimes. It was like, I just can't take this anymore. Because what is focused on there is voluntary strength and assessments. And that somehow if we do that and then we ask the patient, are you having stress urinary incontinence? Then, 
and, and we quote, fix the strength problem, then we're going to fix their incontinence problem. And that is just simply not true. Go ahead, Jess. Well, the thing that I thought was so interesting when you explained this to me is that if you were to evaluate the volitional strength, let's just say we were doing this for 10 postpartum women and you lined them up in order of their pelvic floor strength on those tests, you literally would have no more information on predicting who had urinary incontinence and who didn't. Like you, it literally gives you no information. Correct. So, and putting it another way, right? Somebody that has not so great a strength can have no urinary incontinence. So a person that has four plus out of five or five out of five strength on this volitional squeeze and lift test of the pelvic floor could have massive urinary incontinence. So voluntary strength is not predictive at all on who has incontinence and who doesn't. And so for this podcast, a missing piece that we're looking at is to actually look at both the task and the timing of the recruitment pattern of pelvic floor to help to assess and treat urinary incontinence. It's, I think, one of the most overlooked things. And when we start to break down what that actually means in your evaluation, I think that intuitively y'all know why that makes sense. Well, so talk to me first. Let's break that into two pieces there. So what do you mean by task? Start with that. So for most patients, and this might change a little bit with the type of patient that you are treating. If you primarily treat an older individual, this might not be as applicable to you. But most stress urinary incontinence happens is happening during a type of task that has increased intra-abdominal pressure. We're talking about walking, running, jumping, coughing, laughing, sneezing, some sort of increased pressure, downward pressure onto the system that is not adequately counteracted by the pelvic floor system. Now, most of our patients walking in our doors are not having full-blown bladder loss all the time. You're not having someone that has symptoms of that, right? Some of our older adults like might actually have incontinence with sitting, incontinence with while they're sleeping, that kind of stuff. I'm not talking about that patient. What I'm talking about is our sort of run-of-the-mill either postpartum, perimenopausal, this sort of intermittent stress urinary incontinence problem. They're fine when they're doing their household chores or they're at work, they're sitting down, they're fine. And then when they get up, they do something, they exercise, they laugh, they cough, they sneeze. That's when it happens. So even in your description of that, that's actually really interesting to me, Nicole, because what you're saying, if I'm hearing right, is that 98% of their day, everything's kind of working fine. Yeah. I mean, yes. And again, even if they're having the incontinence, like one of the first questions I ask if someone's having incontinence, we're like, how much are we talking? Are we wetting through a whole pad? Or are you even wearing one? And a lot of times, right, people are having incontinence that's that's very bothersome, but they might not even be wearing much more than a panty liner, if that. They're like, ah, you know, it's really 
annoying, but it's not the huge volume loss that requires like a depends or something like that, right? A lot of our patients are wearing black yoga pants to the gym where it's like, oh, that might be sweat, that might be urine, whatever, right? It's not like they're having a puddle on the floor. Now, I'm not saying that doesn't happen. I'm not saying that that your patient's Some of your patients might not have that problem. That is a very real type of incontinence as well. But what I am saying is that a lot of our stress urinary incontinence patients will have this more intermittent task-specific problem that, that because it is more intermittent in nature, it is more difficult to assess and therefore treat. So task makes sense, I think, intuitively to everybody. I don't know if timing does. What do you mean by timing? So what I mean by timing is, is we will get this intuitively as PTs, maybe not you, (laughs) Jesse, because you're not a clinician. However, we all kind of remember that, that in terms of timing, a person can have normal strength, that's not turning on at the right time and we still have a problem. So someone can have something that's not necessarily weakness, right? Their pelvic floor on voluntary testing can be totally fine or they can be walking around mostly totally fine and then something happens suddenly or a sudden increase in intra-abdominal pressure where the body doesn't quite registered that's what's supposed to be happening and the recruitment pattern doesn't happen in enough time to be able to counteract that pressure. I think that with timing as well, there's a category of patients that that have normal strength but a timing problem, patients that have a two an overactive pelvic floor with a timing problem and somebody that maybe has an underactive pelvic floor also with a timing problem. So we have both the the timing issue can be con- co co-present co-present that's not right but <laughs> that's not right but like at the happening at the same time concurrently concur- concurrently so it can be having happening concurrently with a activity issue so both of those things need to be addressed to see what is going on And then you add on the additional assessment of what task are you doing? So you have basically three things to be assessing for. Is the the activity of the muscle at rest? Then how is it reacting and the task itself? And so how do you tell if it is a timing issue? Like what are the clues that you're looking for in either your subjective questions or in your evaluation that lets you know that this is a this is a timing thing. So if your patient is having like an intermittent problem or a sneeze happens and sometimes they have incontinence or they have a varying amount of urine that comes out, that is to me a sign that you have a timing problem. Oh, that's brilliant, right? Because I'm just putting pieces together right now, but if it was truly a strength problem, then Every time you sneezed and put a force on the pelvic floor, the pelvic floor would be too weak to counteract it. And you should get the same exact result every single time you step off of a curb, you sneeze, you cough, you laugh. 
then if weakness was truly the problem, there would be no variation in what happens. It's like you cough, then you leak. Yeah, I mean, assuming that your cough has a you know underlying amount of a, of oomph of oomph, right? Like a yeah, a but, baseline amount of oomph. But right? generally speaking, right? I mean, sneezes are like within plus or minus five percent, right? So yeah, yeah, yeah. okay, right. So totally. that's that's a total evidence then that it is not a overall strength issue it's a timing issue if you're seeing variability in reaction yes totally so or if someone can also say something like oh today i played tennis and it was fine sometimes i play tennis and it's a mess right so i mean you can extrapolate from there some other things but in, i would say an endurance problem is also a timing issue right because it's it's the ability to counteract pressure over a period of time so it's also what I'm talking about there as well. So that's the person who's totally fine for a quick run, but then starts leaking at mile three. Yes. That you also have a timing, you can have a timing issue there as well. Okay. So it sounds like you can get really good clues about task and timing from just talking with your patient, but how do you actually assess that? So let's talk about tasks first. Assessing the task is quite literally looking at them doing that task and looking for inefficiencies in their movement or something where there might be a intra-abdominal pressure challenge to that system. And we talk a ton about this in the Essentials Pelvic Strengthening course, Not Your Mama's Kegels, about how to actually do that. But it's actually doing movement analysis and looking and seeing how is that person running? What is going on? How is that person jumping? And the entire system of how your body is performing that specific task plays into how you're going to assess and treat that problem. So not on your back on the table. Not on your back on the table. So the second thing was the timing is a little bit more of, of a interesting thing. This is why I feel like a standing and, di- and dynamic, right? Those two things are not interchangeable. A standing assessment and a dynamic assessment are two different things. But a standing assessment and a dynamic assessment that we're approximating the task at hand while you're assessing the pelvic floor actually can give you the best information about the timing or recruitment pattern issue that you might be finding in your patient. I can also tell you how not to assess this, and this is not on your back. This is not through a biofeedback machine. There can be no substitute for assessing this timing thing by, except for actually doing a standing or dynamic assessment to Feel what the timing and recruitment pattern is of that person approximating the task or doing the actual task if that's possible in your session. Because that is the way that you're going to see, is there a time in that task or in that range of motion of the task that the recruitment pattern breaks down and At that point, then we're going to be looking a little bit more macro at what is the inefficiency there and what is the increased pressure that is happening at the pelvic floor that is creating this stress urinary incontinence problem. 
So let me ask one little follow-up question, just as a practical example. And I know you go into standing and dynamic assessments in the Not Your Mom's Kegels course. If you guys are feeling some kind of way about not doing those, like don't feel bad. I don't know anybody else who is actually teaching that, although a lot of experts in the field are doing it. But Nicole, so when you say like feeling for when it breaks down or feeling for where the timing doesn't work, can you... Like if you are assessing someone's pelvic floor in a dynamic position, let's say they're doing a lunge, whatever. I don't know if you, if you want to change my example, that's fine. What do you actually feel when the timing breaks down or when the recruitment breaks down? So there's two things that you look for when you're doing this. Where you place your fingers during the standing and dynamic assess- and dynamic assessment is how you feel these two things differently. You can actually feel... If you just have your fingers at up intravaginally, if your patient has a vagina, then you can feel where the pressure will be coming down onto your finger. So you can literally feel it on there. So like they could be doing that lunge and it's like, it's okay, it's okay there. Yep, totally. You can totally feel that. The other thing that you can do is you can place your finger a little bit more on, just to give you an example, like the pubococcygeus, which is one of the things around the urethral hiatus that can help with urethral closure. Or you can have a a little bit more at the first or second layer of musculature. So you can actually feel when those muscles engage, essentially. You can have it more on the pelvic floor itself so that you can feel when the pelvic floor responds and reacts. And remember, the pelvic floor has an anticipatory postural control action, and it also has an automaticity to it that co-contracts with a ton of other muscles in our body. So we should be feeling some sort of activity, not necessarily the squeeze and lift that we are taught to feel in the beginning courses, but we can just feel a tension increase in those areas if we actually have our fingers on the pelvic floor muscles at that time. So those are two areas that I look for in the standing and dynamic assessment that can give us information on the recruitment pattern and the timing of the pelvic floor activation. And notice that I'm saying pelvic floor activation because urethral closure is actually a super complex activity. Remember that the pelvic floor actually has a literal hole in it called the urogenital hiatus. So there is a literal hole in your pelvic floor that is where the vaginal canal and the urethra pass. And so there's literally a gap there. And so that creates a system that needs to happen for urethral closure. And it's too much to get in here in a podcast. This is why this is a series of a missing piece. But it's not just about the pelvic floor contraction for urethral closure. So the missing piece in this case is not hyper-focusing on strength, but is task and timing, which leads you to a standing and dynamic assessments and movement analysis. And it takes you more down that kind of functional path as you examine task and timing for incontinence. Yes. And then one other thing that I want you all to think about is that when you think about the urogenital triangle of pelvic floor musculature, and you think about the anal triangle of pelvic floor musculature, if you have 
stress urinary incontinence, we're mostly then talking about the musculature that's in the urogenital triangle. The urogenital triangle lies in a plane that is different than the anal triangle that is significantly impacted by pelvic and pelvis position. And because of that, you need to be assessing your patient and looking at the position of the pelvis and the stress and the potential pressure that's on the urogenital triangle at the time of the breach in that pressure management system. That's what we have to be doing in order to thoroughly assess for somebody with urinary incontinence. And this is something that I feel like is significantly overlooked. It's so much more than sticking your finger in and telling you to squeeze and lift on your back. It is like so much more than that. So we can't just do that and expect to have any impact on stress urinary incontinence. I love how we always pick one thing and you always have like six little mini things that you got to squeeze in there, but I totally dig it. I'm here for it. But that is our series here on a missing piece for incontinence. It is task and timing. So if this was helpful for you, please reach out. Let us know if you have other questions, if you want us to do this kind of deep dive on another condition or another symptom, please let us know. But as always, guys, really appreciate you listening. Let's keep this conversation going. And let's continue to rise.